the simplest commercial baking resource. Brought to you by Bakerpedia and hosted by Lynn Carson with a PhD in grain sciences. Sharing knowledge and helping you grow connections. Listening to the Baked in Science podcast. Welcome to Baked in Science. I am your host, Dr. Lynn from Bakerpedia, the world's largest online depository of technical baking information. Today, I will be interviewing experts on emulsifier replacement technologies. I know. I know you've probably seen and heard quite enough on this topic. And that's why I went outside of America and reached out to two specialists from Europe to share with us their latest research. The first one is Dr. Helmut Reuser, and he has a mind-blowing technology from Wacker Chemical Corp. It's called Alpha Dextrins. Alpha Dextrins, bakers! I believe this molecule is going to revolutionize this industry. I'm not kidding. It's an ingredient solution I've never seen before. And it's produced in a way that, well, you just have to listen to this interview I recorded at IFT this year. Today we have Helmut Rocher from Wecker Biosolutions. He is the technical director of Wecker Chemical Corporation. Welcome, Helmut. Welcome. I dropped by today because I wanted to look for an emulsifier replacement solution and I was blown away by what you have to offer in terms of cyclodextrins. Now, to me that's new, but you have been working on that for a while. Can you tell me a little bit about your past and when did you start working on this? I'm a chemist by trade, to be honest. I have a bachelor, master, PhD in chemistry. Mm-hmm. Later on, I made an MBA. Therefore, I work since almost 30 years on both sides of the medal. Okay. On the one side, I'm looking into the market and the business side. On the other side, I'm always very close to the lab and develop new products. With cyclodextrins, I'm almost working more than 25 years. And uh, we started in a lot of different applications and a lot of different markets. So, so before you go on, why cyclodextrins? Well, I mean, like, there are tons of molecules out there. Why <laughs> cyclodextrins? Cyclodextrins are actually really fascinating molecules. First, what I like, if we talk about the food industry, and I'm focusing on food dietary supplements about 10, 15 years, mm-hmm. since 10, 15 years, they are first out of renewable resources. They are made out of starch, cornstarch, potato starch, or whatever you want. We are here in the States. We are making it in the middle of the corn belt in Iowa. Therefore, we are using cornstarch. And from these renewable resources, you just take an enzyme, and these enzymes cut out little pieces of the starch helix and put it together in a ring form. And now you have a ring of glucose unit with alpha dextrin, for example, with six glucose units, which look like a donut. And in the middle of the donut, you have the donut hole, which is the most important part in the cyclodextrin, because you can fill up these holes with hydrophobic 
non-water soluble substances. And this is where all the technology is basically based on. So that is interesting because you're telling me, unlike a lot of other modified starches, this particular process of producing cyclodextrin is through an enzymatic process. And the enzymatic process is uh, using, you know, fermentation or some kind of biochemical process? No, it's just enzyme, enzyme. water, and the starch. That's it. It's it, really very it's, clean. These are the key ingredients to make cyclodextrins, yes. I don't know that, right? A lot of people don't know that. I mean, it's just like, well, cyclodextrin sounds really intimidating to me because I don't know how it's prepared, but... You're telling me that it's through enzymatic reactions it's, it's an enzymatic and, and it creates uh, fat-loving interior and yes. water-loving exterior. That's absolutely correct. Very okay. good. Very so good that's why it can be functional as an emulsifier. Yes. To function as an emulsifier, we have to go one little step further. If we have now the cyclodextrin with this empty hole yeah. and put it in water, it dissolutes very well, alpha-dextrin, up to 14% actually. But then if you add a fat to it, fat is hydrophobic. Right. And fat contains, or it's a little glycerine ring and a glycerine molecule which has three fatty acids, long-chain fatty acids. And one of these fatty acids goes into the empty cavity of these uh, donut ring right. and two stick outside right. and this construction is pretty solid that means just by mixing fat water and alpha dextrin you are creating something which has a hydrophilic head the sugar molecule uh -huh. and the hydrophobic tail the remaining two fatty acids so, so just to cut it short and to make it really visual for the bakers out there it's like putting my kid in the pool with a lifesaver and his head is sticking out yes. of the water and his two legs are in the water. That's yes. what it looks like, That's right? That's exactly okay. what it looks like. The, the kid, <laughs> the head is out of the water, it's yes. hydrophilic, there you, there you go. and the feet are in the water, it's hydrophobic. And now you have an exactly description of yes. an emulsifier. Yes which is hydrophobic and hydrophilic both at the same time right. and that's what we have just by mixing these substances and if you have that now then what does an emulsifier do exactly an emulsifier brings together two phases which are normally not mixable right. oil and water Right. And what we do basically is now we have little oil droplets which are stabilized by the emulsifier in water. And that's what we call an oil-in-water emulsion. Everyone knows this. Milk, for example, is an oil-in-water emulsion. That's true. Right. And basically, if you can visualize now that someone puts water in a beaker and puts 100, 200 milliliter of sunflower oil on it, you will have two faces. If you take one teaspoon of alpha-dextrin in this water and mix it up in your kitchen aid, you would have a mayonnaise. You just have to put some spices in because you are creating an oil-in-water emulsion just by these three ingredients. So the chemist would logically ask what's the HLB or the hydrophilic lipophilic balance of this alpha-cyclodextrin. Mm -hmm. What is it? <laughs> it's not so easy to explain here because normally an emulsifier is a well-defined structure. It's one molecule. Correct. 
in the alpha dextrin, we are creating the emulsifier mm -hmm. with the fat which is existing. So if you have a triglyceride with a long chain fatty acids, your hydrophobic part is bigger right. than if you have a diglyceride or a smaller fatty acid. Therefore, true. the HLB value can actually vary. It varies it, on the kind of system you have, right? Kind of yeah, the system so you that, have. That's why there's no real HLB value to this. That's yeah, correct. This that's is why true. you are cannot really define an HLB value. But what I can tell you is, if you're using a triglyceride, the normal triglyceride with long-chain fatty acids, which you are normally use, then the emulsification capacity is the best. Wow, that's mind-blowing. But if you are looking Seriously. now, basically, if you are in a comparison to known emulsifiers and these new emulsifier system, then we have to look a little bit at the function. Normally, emulsifiers are working in a way that if you have more fat to emulsify, you need more emulsifier. Because these emulsifiers are normally hydrophobic. Mm -hmm. Our emulsifier is a sugar molecule, basically. Yeah. <laughs> Therefore, it's hydrophilic. And that comes now with a very interesting thing that the more fat you use right. the less emulsifier you need That's right. therefore if you wanted to make a stable oil and water emulsion with 60 percent oil and 40 percent water you need half a percent of alpha dextrin in that system to emulsify it half a percent yes that's yes. hardly anything yes that's absolutely correct oh, wow okay so that's therefore these systems are used now in for example, in vegetarian mayonnaise, because you can avoid egg, and some people are unfortunately allergic to egg products, and this way you can make it vegetarian. That's great. So, if I were to use it, what would it look like on my label? You label it alpha dextrin. Okay. And in addition to being as an emulsifier, if you look at alpha dextrin from the function, it's also a soluble dietary fiber. Therefore, on a nutrition label, it looks nice because it increases your fiber content, but on the other hand, also lowers a little bit your caloric intake because it has only, like other non-digestible but fermentable carbohydrates, only a caloric intake of two kilocalories per oh, gram wow. okay. instead of four like normal proteins and sugars. That's amazing. So does it have an E number? No, it does not have an E number. That's another advantage. And if you are looking at our emulsions we are creating with this system, we also see that depending how much fat or oil and cyclodextrin you are using, you can modify your viscosity from very, very low like salad dressing to very, very stable like icings which you use for cake decorations. Therefore, you have a very wide variety. That means in the system you can change your texture of your food you are creating by using this one product and therefore it maybe helps you to have a smaller ingredient list which works into the trend of clean label. No E number, less ingredients. So how is this different then from other emulsifiers? Yeah, the main difference is that the emulsifier has to be created in the system because itself, the cyclodextrin, is just a sugar molecule, hydrophilic, 
and a soluble dietary fiber. But in combination with fat, it creates an emulsifier, which then can be used as a normal emulsifier. Got it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for educating me on the function of emulsifiers today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. And it's always a pleasure to talk about Alpha Dextry. <laughs> thank you. Let's take a break to do a shout out to our sponsors, AIB, Arla, Bakewatch, Belcam, Surrenda, Diasna, De Laval, Frika Foods, Grain Millers, Ingredion, Interfiber, JNK Ingredients, Lalaman, MGP, Middleby Bakery, PGP International, Pirados, Redding Thermal, Solange's Mills, and Wecker Chemical Corp. Thank you, sponsors. You have made Bakerpedia and this Baked in Science series available freely for all bakers out there. Now, here is Yanis Samakiris with me from Novozymes to update us on emulsifier replacements using enzymes. And today we have Yanis. Hi, Yanis. Hello. Hi. Very nice Yannis, to be with you. Thanks for joining me. You are the industry technology specialist from Novozymes. What do you do there? Well, I joined Novozymes seven years ago as industry technology specialist. So I work on the technical service department, supporting our customers to implement our enzymatic solutions. And by doing so, improving their products, in this case, breads. Right. And recently with the bread trend, as everyone's trying to clean up from using actual emulsifiers, ingredients like datum, SSL, and monoendiglycerides, and those traditionally have worked very well as emulsifiers in dough to help with uh, making the cell uniform, you know, whitening up the crumb, making it easier to process and really, you know, better sliceability. So the reason why I have you on today is because I want to find out from you what are we looking at in terms of technology to replace emulsifiers? What mm. solutions do you have? Well, actually, allow me here to, when we talk about emulsifiers, they are mainly used for two reasons in the baking industry. One is, as you mentioned, for this uh, dough strengthening effect right. that uh, yields a finer crumb structure, a more white crumb, a nicer volume and bloom. That's one segment. And the other is about improving the fresh keeping properties of the bread. So Correct. allowing for the bread to stay fresh for longer. Right. Shelf life. Yeah, still have. Yeah. But, you know, with enzymes, we have been very, very successful in replacing emulsifiers. And actually, when we talk about fresh keeping, uh, I think we have been able to raise the bar much higher than what emulsifiers can really achieve. So that's one, one application that I believe enzymes have really now dominated the market instead mm -hmm. of emulsifiers. And the other, of course, is the dose strengthening. Again, we have been very successful to replace emulsifiers, as those that you mentioned. Because among others, of course, you have a clean label, also you have a lower cost in use, you get uh, away from this chemical taste that the emulsifiers usually bring into the bread. So for, we have been really successful for all these reasons. Right. So it really makes me curious when you say that it works better. 
What do you well, really mean that it works better in terms of emulsification, dose strengthening? Well, I was referring mainly to the fresh keeping, definitely oh. enzymes. Yeah. Shelf life, uh, okay. Shelf life, yeah, yeah. Shelf life, I mean, it's obvious we have tons of data clearly illustrating that uh, maltogenic amylases, which is the type of enzymes used for this application, can overperform emulsifiers. That's very clear. And these days, I think that the industry norm, the benchmark, is to use maltogenic amylases Correct. and not uh, emulsifiers anymore. So emulsifiers have been more or less wiped, been, have been wiped out for fresh keeping purposes, or if they're being used, they're being used also for some additional benefits they might bring. Correct. Now, when it comes down to store strengthening, there is a neck-to-neck -neck, uh, fight, let's say, <laughs> but we can achieve the same results. So the same volume, the same toe strengthening, the same cramp uniformity as, for example, datum, but at a fraction of the cost and also helping the clean labeling exercise or process. So these two are also big advantages when one uses, decides to use uh, enzymes instead of emulsifiers. Right. So can I go in and further ask what particular enzyme or enzymes can replace datum? Well, typically we would uh, promote our phospholipases. They come under the brand name Lipopan, and we have different versions, uh, Lipopan Max, Lipopan Prime, Lipopan F, because we have also tried over the years to improve their functionality, but they would be phospholipases. So if you want me to explain how phospholipases work. I would love for you to explain phospholipase because... Yes, I know it's not the easiest. phospholipases. <laughs> Could you make yeah. it easy for us to understand? Well, basically they are lipases, right? And lipases are enzymes that clip that fats, right? Yes, exactly. That cut yes. into fat and make yeah, exactly. bigger fat molecules smaller. Exactly, exactly. Okay. But in this case, in flour, flour has about 2 to 3% flour lipids. And some of them are polar and some of them are non-polar. Now right. we're getting a bit more <laughs> scientific here. But anyhow, the point is that the polar ones that are mainly, we call them phospholipids. Oh, That's okay. the one that the lipases work on. That's why we call these lipases phospholipases. And what the lipases do is they convert these polar lipids into even more polar lipids. And that helps in stabilizing the gas cells that are produced during fermentation because these gas cells have a tendency to expand, as you can imagine, during proofing. And if there is not enough structure or strength on the gas cells themselves, they will merge and then you will lose on volume, you will lose also on cramp uniformity of the bread. Phospholipases help in avoiding this coalescence of the gas cells by acting on the phospholipids, on the lipids of the flour, if you want to make it a little bit simpler. For Interesting. So you're audience. telling me that from all that flour, that's like 2 to 3%, it's lipids, mm -hmm. that phospholipase act on such a small amount of the flour. Yeah, I would say about half of, of the flour lipids are phospholipids, roughly. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that, but that's the beauty of enzymes, that they can be very specific in their action. So you don't really need a huge substrate or a huge quantity of an enzyme to get very good uh, results. So, That's interesting yeah. because you're telling me it turns them from polar to superpolar. Yes, exactly. So from, and that's when it, it stabilizes the gas cells. Mm, now, yeah. when does this happen? Like, well, does it happen at mixing or does it happen at baking? Or well, proofing? it starts during mixing, but the main effect happens during proofing, right? 
when we, we let the dough in a cabinet, you know, usually at uh, 40 degrees or somewhere yeah, there. Celsius. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, for a certain time to let it, the dough to rise, right? That's when it happens because that's when most of the, of the gas cells are produced. That's interesting. Yeah, and they are fully inactivated during baking. So post-baking, they are basically inactivated, so they don't serve any, any purpose What is the anymore. temperature activity? Of the lipases, I think, yes. if I'm not mistaken, around 60, 70 degrees, something like that. Okay. Yep, that's still in the proofer and a little bit of the early baking stage. Yeah, yeah. Besides phospholipase, are there mm -hmm. any other enzymes that helps in the dose strengthening stage? Well, we have also what we call glucose oxidases. Glucose oxidases help in strengthening the gluten structure. So, in a way, one could argue that, uh, of course, they don't work through um, you know, improving the, the emulsion, but they also help in developing a firmer gluten network. So, that would be another way to approach. Um, right, because it's the, the uh, dose strengthener part of it. Yeah, we call it a gluten strengthening, but that's an eternal Yeah, yeah so what, uh, does, what does glucose oxidase act on? Well, basically it acts on, on the glucose, and by that it creates hydrogen peroxide. This hydrogen peroxide is a strong oxidant, so it creates more disulfide bonds, that's which are true. the bonds that connect the, the gluten strands together. So in a snapshot, that's, that's, that's Many, many, many years ago... Bakers used to use peroxides. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's... Uh, <laughs> so this that's, is a natural uh, way of doing it. <laughs> that's a natural way of doing it. Yeah, yeah, that's a natural. But mainly for dose strengthening, the enzymes that are really, you know, uh, have been very, very successful for replacing emulsifiers are the lipases, the phospholipases. Mm -hmm. Of course, they can be complemented by other enzymes that can help also in gluten strengthening. That's also a possibility. But uh, you can do it also just by using a, a phospholipase. Okay, so basically you're saying that yes. phospholipase is the main enzyme ingredient mm -hmm. that we would use to replace datum. Is that correct? Yes, exactly. Okay, yes. is there any other enzymes that can replace ingredients like datum or SSL or mono and diglycerides? Well, for datum and SSL, it would be phospholipases. Mm -hmm. Monoglycerides are usually used, or they were used in the past, mainly for fresh keeping purposes. And as we discussed earlier, for fresh keeping purposes, right. then we, we would promote the maltogenic amylases. Maltogenic amylases, they work on starch. Basically, they trim a little bit the amylopectin, which is the main component of the starch. Right. And by doing so, they delay the starch retrogradation, the starch reassociation post-baking that leads to this firmness over time. So for... Um, right, so the yeah. maltogenic amylase actually works on staling starch retrogradation. Yes. Who doesn't address the problem of mono and diglycerides, which is the sliceability, like when you cool bread and when you use mono and diglycerides, it's so silky soft, you know mm. what I mean? So, yeah, well, for that, actually, that you mentioned, we have, a, it's a lipase. It's not a phospholipase. It's a 1,3 lipase that works on the triglycerides uh -huh. that can also have a similar effect as when it comes down to sliceability. Ooh, I like that. You call that 1,3 lipase? It's yeah, well, we're getting to... link. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> but it's, it's cool. anyhow. Yeah, yeah, anyhow, anyhow. I mean, it's basically, it's one that doesn't work on the polar lipids. It works on the non-polar lipids. Oh, of, that's... 
better, actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I got carried away and make it. Uh... So, let me ask you something. So if a baker uses oil, right, like corn oil or like canola yeah. oil in the mm -hmm. recipe, and will the enzyme actually work on these shortening oils instead of the flour lipids? Not really. I mean, these uh, enzymes are selected oh, for their specificity. Okay. So very specific for the They are very specific. That's, you know, the, the important thing for when it comes down to enzymes. As we said, they are very substrate specific. Yeah, that's um, Well, that's it's good, good to know. About. I don't want to, like, keep adding oil and then the enzymes, like, keep cutting my oil apart. So No, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, we, <laughs> you know, uh, enzymes have been used for many, many years now in uh, baking industry very successfully for those strengthening applications and without any side effects uh, so no worry about that yeah. <laughs> they are very they are very specific in their yeah. actions <laughs> up to this point no one has really told me the difference between one three lipase and phospholipase ah, and how okay. it functions in the in the flour so this is really exciting to me now okay. i want to take a step back and talk about the maltogenic amylase yes now where does it start working well, the maltogenic amylase starts working around 80 degrees Celsius, so pretty much... Oh, much higher. Much higher. And that's okay. why it's also a very successful enzyme, because it can work at the point that the starch is gelatinized, and so it can really attack, let's say, or act on the entire starch that is there. Oh. But then when the, we end up, uh, we're going to go with higher temperatures, around 90 degrees, then it's inactivated. So it has a very nice, along uh, the expression, or very effective temperature window of operation so it can really work but on the entire me that's only 10 degrees celsius of a window of operation well i mean that's it starts to be there that's not yeah. like <laughs> a lot <laughs> well it is not again though i mean you don't really want to damage your starch I oh mean, i got uh, it a okay uh, in, a little a bit of it not too much because yeah, yeah, to so me, 10 degrees is like probably maybe no more than five minutes of baking time. Is that, is yeah, that yeah, right? but that's, yeah, yeah, probably it is, but that's uh, good enough. For example, there are bacterial amylases in the market that work at even higher temperatures. But what happens is that their mechanism of action is much more aggressive. So they cut the starch far more, leading to cramp inelasticity, loss of That's resilience, yeah, like uh, and gaminess. Yeah. Right. So the good thing about our solutions under the name Novamil is that they are very mild, very specific on their action on the starch. So they don't destroy the starch uh, structure, but just enough to allow for um, retarding the whole starch retrogradation of this process. So this firming of the starch takes place at a longer time. Right. So, do you recommend a bacterial or a maltogenic amylase? Uh, clearly, maltogenic. Uh, it's a pity I cannot show you here, but I have some slides that very clearly illustrate the effect of a bacterial versus a maltogenic amylase on the cramp. You see, when you use a bacterial amylase and you press the, the cramp with your hand, with your finger, let's say, then it doesn't really bounce back. It's very gummy, very inelastic, while with maltogenic amylase, it fully bounces back. And... As I said, you know, maltogenic amylases, uh, especially Novamil, is the industry norm, the industry benchmark. Is, is Can I ask you, what's the difference? I thought maltogenic amylase is also from a bacterial source. Is they are right? of bacterial source, but right. just to be able to differentiate, they are also from a bacterial source, you're fully right, but they mainly produce maltose, while the bacteria amylases, as I call them, they will break down the, the starch more aggressively, creating, you know, bigger dextrins. So they will oh, break down the starch. Got it. 
far more. One is more aggressive than the other. Yes, and yes. It's, I mean, sometimes, you know, it's good to have some slides, but here we cannot do that. I know. We, we try to use the audio to try to teach. But basically, is there a difference between maltogenic amylase and actual malt? You know, the malt that we actually dose? At- that, you mean the, the malt flour? Yeah. Yeah, well, the malt flour is a totally different thing. I mean, the malt flour is used to break down the starch at early stages, so, you know, at 50, 60 degrees, oh, and okay. uh, be able to provide maltose that is food for the yeast. For that, we have a different uh, enzyme called uh, fungal alpha amylase that also breaks down the starch, but that starch is only the damaged starch. As you know, flour that's has true. about 5-6% right. damaged starch. Yes, because it's not uh, gelatinous yet. Exactly, that's the right. difference. Yeah, right. so that's the difference. So that's it works. Yeah, so it works at this damaged starch and creates dextrins, and then with endogenous present beta-amylase that is present in all the flour, these dextrins are converted into maltose, and maltose, as we said, is food for the yeast, so it helps in the fermentation process. That's true. That makes sense. So there is a fear in the artisan bakery arena. Um, Some bakers are trying to stay away from enzymes because they don't know what enzymes are and they fear it. They say that it's bad for the body. It's bad for the gut. What do you what do you say to bakers when they think that the enzyme survives the baking process? Well, the, um, the enzymes do not survive the baking process. As I said, they are fully inactivated. That's why they are not declared as ingredients. So when you say fully inactivated, we yes. have to re- really say it. They are broken apart, right? Yeah, they are. I mean, if you imagine, I'll try to explain that without a picture. That's always a bit difficult. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. When we imagine that, you know, enzymes are proteins and they have this like a coil structure. Hmm? Yes. Yeah. So what happens is this coil structure, when you got high temperatures, unfolds. So it's really loosens uncoils. up. Uncoils. It uncoils. Uncoils. At, at, at high temperature, yeah. right. Yes, yes, yes. So when uh, it uncoils, it becomes non-functional and it breaks down. Exactly, exactly. So okay. it doesn't serve any, any purpose. It's just a protein. And to be clear, all enzymes deactivate during the baking process that we use in the baking industry? Yes, yes, yes. All the enzymes and are inactivated. What, what temperature is this usually at? Well, it depends. It depends. I mean, when we were discussing about the, the lipases before, and there I need to correct myself, the optimum for a lipase is around uh, 45 degrees, and at uh, 60, 65, it's fully inactivated. In the case of a maltogenic amylase, it's around uh, 90 degrees that is fully inactivated. So it, it varies from enzyme to enzyme. But in any case, all of them, post-baking, are fully inactivated. Cool. Now, is there anything you would like to add in terms of sharing with the baker on enzyme usage and, you know, the safe use of enzymes? Well, as I said, the enzymes are really dominating (laughs) the baking world even more day to day. We can see that also not happening in, in Europe and the U.S., but also in emerging markets because... They are very effective in the way they work. You only need a tiny amount, so you have great savings when it comes down to cost and use. And uh, also, you can avoid this chemical taste that the emulsifiers usually bring in the bread. And they are very safe to use. I mean, the ones we produce are formulated as such, though, that they don't create any 
problems as long as they are treating, treated in a safe manner. So, you know, you dose them in a hood or in a ventilated area, but they are very, otherwise very safe ingredients to use. Well, that's great. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your knowledge with me, Yanis. There you have it. Solutions for replacing emulsifiers in baking. All right. Have you heard about our seminars? Yes, they are hands-on, delicious sessions in Portland, Oregon that you can attend. Sign up today at bakerpedia.com forward slash academy. Before I go, please like, comment, and subscribe to Baked Insights. Till the next time, bakers. I hope I helped you emulsify your thoughts. Thoughts.